Let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Get a life. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? When are you going to get your life together? That's no way to live life. These would be just some of the phrases that we might use when we want to express, maybe to ourselves, maybe to others, that whatever life is being lived is somehow falling short of what it could be. Of course, there could be other phrases that might come along with those, and maybe there are other phrases that don't mention the word life, but we do recognize this is most definitely a pursuit of the human heart and mind. People long to have whatever we would identify, however we would identify it or define it, people want to have a real life, to enjoy a meaningful and fulfilling existence on this planet. I mean, this this principle is kind of embedded in our own founding documents, right? This desire to to have a, to, to pursue life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, just take a look at how much people invest in trying to make a better life for themselves. I mean, just consider the amount of material out there that is designed to be what we might call self-help material. I mean, there there are literally thousands upon thousands of books that supposedly will help you with whatever problem you think you have, right? There's any any number of of, of TV shows, of internet sites, of, of, of apps that will try and help you figure out how you can do everything from... Losing weight and getting healthy to figuring out how to have a positive attitude, to how to organize your life and do time management better. 
What's fascinating is it seems like all of these efforts to try and make ourselves better just seem to make us more anxious. In fact, we're always looking for what is the next thing that will then make my life more meaningful? What will make it better? What will actually give me an existence that, that I enjoy, however I might define the word enjoyment? People spend all kinds of money and time trying to get the most out of life. And so now, and this I guess has been around for some time, now there are even people who make a living being life coaches. If anybody needs a life coach, I can tell you what to do, all right? Really, I mean, if it, just a little extra income on the side, I don't know what you picture when you think of a life coach. When I think of a coach, I think of a guy in a shirt that's one size too small, right? Short little shorts, a whistle, that's what I think of. Some guy walking beside you, right? Just blowing a whistle at you and telling you, you know, kind of an in-between football coach and military drill instructor. So by the way, if you need that, I'm game, all right? Just let me know. Uh, after the service, I'd be glad to meet with you and schedule a time where I can tell you how to live your life. So life coaches, right? So this is something that we, we find that people invest in. Here's kind of the irony of it. A poll from last year, a rather significant and extensive poll, found that at best 33% of Americans are satisfied with their life. Just one out of three. And my guess is that number may skew a little bit high because my guess is some people wanted to answer the survey questions appropriately so that they would feel better about their own lives. Now, what does it take to have a real life? Well, there's, there's no doubt that this kind of subject is a fitting one as we think about the promise of the resurrection because... All of the hope and promise of life, all of the means by which you and I could live an actual, meaningful, fulfilled, real kind of life, all of that is only going to be realized insofar as you are rightly related to the one who was crucified and raised from the dead. Easter Sunday is a perfect Sunday then to think about what does this really mean? What does it really mean to have a meaningful life? I mean, Jesus was clearly concerned about you having life. Consider some of these statements he himself made. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And John begins his gospel by telling us that in him was life and that life was the light of the world. So clearly in Christ, we have some promise as it relates to the New Testament, as it relates to the gospel. There there is some hope set out then for us in the Bible itself. And in fact, life is found in the person and the work of Christ. So this morning, we, we take a break from the book of Romans just for one Sunday. For those of you who are brand new, like this is your first Sunday with us, we've been in Romans for the last few weeks. I mean, that's relative. It's been about 120-ish weeks, all right, roughly, something like that. And that's, I mean, if you're here and you're 80, that's not very many weeks, right? Okay, so, in other words, that's a relative term. But we're, we're taking a break from it to give our attention then to the, to the resurrection itself and to consider Peter's opening text in his first letter. 
Peter's a, a, a fitting one to go to to talk about the resurrection and its impact on life. If anybody could stand up here and give a personal testimony about how the resurrected Lord changed everything and gave him a meaningful life, it is for sure Peter, a guy who just days before the resurrection was telling people out of fear, I don't even know the man. That same Peter, just weeks later, will stand in front of thousands and with a pointed word tell those in front of him, you are the ones who crucified him and yet in him is found forgiveness of sins. Peter could testify to it. And so in this letter, Peter is really concerned with trying to encourage these early believers, this first church, though it's decades after the resurrection and the ascension, Peter's trying to encourage these folks that they would continue in their faith. He's speaking to a group of believers that have been facing intense persecution. And perhaps are at a point where they're getting concerned. I mean, here Jesus has not yet returned. And they're wondering, is all this for naught? I mean, am I, am I putting myself through this? Am I facing death? Am I facing persecution? Am I facing rejection, even by those closest to me, for something that's actually worth it? So this letter is designed as an encouragement to all of those who are facing persecution, first to tell them, look, there's nothing unusual about your persecution. The world is going to do that to you because in the eyes of the world, you're really weird. I mean, he uses the word, you're like strangers and aliens. But I mean, this is, the, this is the intent here. He's telling them, of course the world hates you because the world does not get you. Everything about you stands in contradiction to the world and its values and principles and pursuits. Yes, you stand against the world. And they don't understand why you don't indulge in the same passions and lusts and desires. They don't know why you live so differently. So yes, they are going to persecute you. So that's part of his intent. But his intent is to also then encourage these believers, not only with why they're first facing persecution, but with the promise of a reward to come. And this is laid out for us in its initial phase here in verses 3 through 9. So, so Peter's going to open up this letter. By the way, I'll go ahead and tell you now, There's a good chance every other time I refer to the text, I'm going to say Paul, all right? So after the service, those of you who want to point out whatever mistakes I make, okay, just know, I already know that. I'm going to call him Paul because we've been in Romans for half of my ministry here. Well, not quite, but I'm going to call him that. So it's not my, in other words, it's not my fault, all right? It's not my fault. Isn't that that great? Say, Pastor, some of your visitors are thinking, does he normally blame God for stuff like this? Is that what he's doing? Kind of, all right? So Peter's going to give us, I think, helpful encouragement today as we think about what, what kind of impact then should the hope of Christ, crucified, resurrected, have on our lives. 1 Peter 3 through 9, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 will give it to us. In these verses, the apostle encouraged believers who are facing tremendous persecution with the promises related to the resurrection, so that you and I, as believers, we can live by faith. We can know and experience a real life. 
Because of the benefits given to us through the resurrection. So what are those? Well, we're going to note four, all right? We're going to take a few minutes, and I, I know you think, nah, no way. All right, so we'll do our best here. By the way, I don't even have a watch, so that should really bother some of you. Yeah, some of you gave me big eyes, like, don't worry, we've got them, all right? We got watches, we'll let you know, we'll raise a hand. But we will get to what I think are at least four benefits here of the resurrection. If you want to take notes, you can look on the back of your bulletin, you can fill these in. And these, I think, give us great instruction this morning as we think about what it means to live a real life in light of the fact we have a risen Savior. So number one, first benefit of the resurrection, because of the resurrection... We can't have life. We can't have life. When I say life, I mean life as God intended. I mean life that now lives in contradiction to life as a result of the fall and the curse and sin that came in from from our very first parents, Adam and Eve. I mean life that lives in contradiction to that. Genuine life. Life that now is freed from the curse of death and sin and enjoys fellowship with God. Notice how Peter describes this, again beginning in verse 3. He begins with this word of blessing or praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, just a note here about that phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is shorthand, I think, for the entirety of the gospel. In other words, when Peter writes this, he's not necessarily saying something about the crucifixion by leaving it out. When, when he's, and Paul does this too, by the way, and some of the other New Testament writers, often the language of the resurrection of Christ from the dead is, is like a shorthand version of talking about all that Christ did. Death, burial, resurrection. And so I, th- I think that is the driving phrase of the text. And the first thing he speaks about is that according to God's abundant mercy, we have been, and, and the language in the New King James says, begotten again, which sounds very King Jamesy, doesn't it, right? To be begotten again, it's odd, because you and I don't use that word in this kind of context that often, but if your mind goes back to John 3, if maybe you're wondering, does this have anything to do with the language of being born again? Well, yes, all right, you nailed it, okay, that's it. When he says being begotten again, so that's, you know, when you and I talk about a baby being born, we, we don't say, you know, you don't walk up to somebody and say, so when was your baby begotten? All right? In other words, we don't use that kind of language. You can. All right? You should. Actually, you should from now on and people look at you funny and you're just going to say, well, I'm just being theological. All right? Maybe you could get into a gospel conversation that way. I don't know. It's just not the term that we normally use, but that's what Peter has in mind. Because of the abundant mercy, that which was expressed to us through the work of the gospel, we've been born again. This expresses a fundamental need for us. I mean, it gets to the very heart of the gospel. It gets to the very essence of what our problem is. And that is that we are born into this life, dead in our trespasses and sin. That you and I, no matter how much we may work for it, no matter how many times we try to be more good than bad, 
gooder than batter. I know those aren't right words, but you know what I mean, right? No matter how much we think, well, I think I help more people than I hurt, or whatever standard you want to develop to try and make God accept you based on your works, that this kind of language establishes us for us the clear fact there is nothing out there. There's no work. There's no program. There's no app. There's no self-help book. There's no series of podcasts. There's no TV show. There's nothing out there that will bring you back from the dead but Jesus Christ. Our desperate need is for a Savior because you and I need life. We are born rebels against God. Even our best effort, the Bible describes, Paul himself described his best effort as rubbish. Philippians chapter 3 describes it as, as garbage. It's pretty strong words. By the way, if you're the kind of person who thinks your good works are going to get you there, I'd line your stuff up next to Paul's. See how you line up because I'm about 100% certain you're going to fall short of the standard he set, and he described it all as garbage, refuse, unworthy of anything. So this is the reality of the gospel. We are born into this life, rebels from God, deserving of death, punishment for our sin. But the good news of the gospel is it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to stay in that kind of condition, because this is the promise Jesus gave to Nicodemus, as he's wondering, what do I need to do in order to be made right with God? And his statement is, you must be born again. You need new life, and that new life comes to us only through Jesus Christ. It is made possible because at the crucifixion, Jesus took God's wrath that should have been displayed against us. He bore in his body God's wrath against Our sin. He was a substitute. He stood in our place. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why the verse begins by saying, according to the abundant mercy of God, though God was under no obligation to extend His love to me in this way, this is what He did. He extended it to me in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died. He was was bruised for me. He was was afflicted for me. He, he He was... stricken on my behalf in Him were all my iniquities laid on top of Him. And God poured out His wrath on the cross for my sin. Now, that'd be horrible, wouldn't it? (laughs) If that's all we had. In fact, my guess is we don't have these, this many people showing up if that's the only message, right? I mean, we're probably not doing the whole Easter thing. Well, I know we're not because there's no Easter, right? And we're probably not having as big a crowd on a Friday to talk about the crucifixion if there is no Sunday resurrection. I mean, that's, that's why then he, as a shorthand, talks about we have been begotten again. We've been given life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the hope of the gospel. We've been reconciled to God. We've been made right with God. We've been born again. We've been given new life. And so I would appeal to anybody here, knowing the number of folks that we have here, knowing that there are guests with us, quite frankly, there may even be um, some members who need to think carefully about the nature of their fellowship with God. 
Because walking through these doors does not get you any more credit. It's not a check mark in your favor. When you, when you stand before God, it, it's not going to be about whatever things you did today, thinking this is what will make me right with God. In fact, even every attempt to do something to earn God's favor is, in fact, another strike against me. The good news, God in His abundant mercy can give you life. And if you hear today, will confess that you are a sinner and will confess that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. And if you will, with faith and trust, place all of your hope in Christ, confessing that in Him and Him alone is the only means by which you can be made right with God, then you can be born again today. That's the good news of the gospel. That is the life that is available to us. There's a second benefit. Because of the resurrection, we can also have hope. We can also have hope. Do you notice that next word or phrase? Who has begotten us, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to what? To a living hope. To a living hope. A genuine, real hope. Hope is one of those tricky words, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those words that I think we find ourselves using. I I don't know that we always use it correctly, or at least we transfer the way we might use it in day-to-day life. We might transfer that then when we read it in a text like Scripture, like 1 Peter. Because when we use the word hope, it's more of kind of like a wishful thinking, right? A kind of a a positive outlook on things. Like, like we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna speak positively, think positively. We're going to have an optimistic view of things. So we'll, we'll use the language of, of hope. And that's certainly a use of the term. But when the Bible uses the word, it doesn't use it that way. I mean, the, the Bible's reference to the word hope really isn't about optimism. And here's the word. If you want to write this down, you can. The biblical language of hope is not necessarily language of optimism. It is language of confidence. It is language of confidence. When Peter talks about having a living hope, when when the Bible is full of encouragement about our hope being found in God or our hope being found in Christ... This language of hope is certainty. It is confidence. It is knowing beyond doubt that because of all that He has done for me, I'm cared for. All the promises of God are mine. All the benefits of salvation are mine. There is a certainty available to me because of the work of the gospel. Peter talks about having a living hope. Now, just think about how significant this would be to a group of people that, quite frankly, has faced persecution. I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody. Again, a lot of people in here, maybe you have experienced intense persecution because of your faith, but that's going to be a really, really small number in our context, right? I mean, when Peter uses the language living hope, he's not speaking ironically, but he is directly addressing what is the fact of every day of their lives. Peter, Paul, the apostles, believers, every day that they woke up, 
that they walked outside of their home. Every day they engaged in life. Because here's what these earliest believers were doing. They weren't trying to massage the gospel into people. All, right? all, all of these earliest believers were bold and courageous in their faith. So every day they walked out with the gospel on their lips they knew could be the last day on this earth. That's quite a thought, right? I mean, you and I probably live with the thought, well, we never know. We never know what will happen to us. But Peter's speaking about this knowing. I mean, these folks are putting their lives in jeopardy, the lives of their family, the lives of their children. Peter's writing to people who have known folks who faced realities of persecution you and I have only ever seen in movies. I mean, facing real persecution, they've been in situations where they they knew family members who were looking full on at hungry lions, surrounded by Roman spectators. And this was a game, all for sport. These are the people that he is writing to, and he says, you have been begotten again to a living hope. And all of this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The promise of the gospel is that you and I as believers can be certain, can be certain that every promise given to us will be kept. We can live life with absolute confidence. No matter the pain, no matter the challenges, no matter the difficulty, we can have living hope. So because of the resurrection... We can have life, we can have hope, we can have number three, we can have security. How does that sound? I mean, how, how many of you here worry about the issue of security, right? I guess there's a good number of us. Think of it this way. How many of you remember a time in church life where you never would have thought that there would have been an actual ministry arm of the church called the security team, right? But that, that's a thing. In fact, some, some of you, maybe if you're here for the first time, maybe you're even a little surprised if you happen to find a parking lot behind us, parking spot behind us. There's a police officer back there. I mean, why is that? Because the first thought that comes to mind walking through our day-to-day lives isn't necessarily, I feel really secure, right? I mean, none of us really know. We we deal with these things. And that's that's not including then what may be personal day-to-day kinds of concerns and worries and anxieties. In other words, security is a big deal. But understand, that's not foreign to the New Testament. Notice what he goes on to say. After talking about being begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection. Now he talks about another, in another direction. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What a profound promise. 
But in other words, through the resurrection, not only do I have all this promise of, of life here and now and being reconciled to God here and now, I have my sins forgiven. God now calls me friend instead of enemy. Christ calls me brother. I, I don't stand anymore condemned before God. And now I can live each and every day knowing that I am right with Him. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. What a profound promise. But Peter goes even further and he says, because of this resurrection, now you have an inheritance and he strings together those three words, kind of synonyms, but kind of giving different nuances to talk about the absolute certainty of the promises that have been made to you. You have an inheritance reserved in heaven just for you. Reserved. Don't you love that language? For reservation? Something that's held for you? Something that's guaranteed for you? Something that is certain, and Peter wants to make sure we understand the profound value of this thing because he says it is imperishable or incorruptible, meaning it doesn't suffer the decay associated with the stuff of this world. It's perfect. It's undefiled. You you, you could think of it in monetary terms. This is an inheritance that never depreciates. Have any of you ever made an investment that costs you money? Right? We probably don't talk much about those, but perhaps we have, whether intentionally or unintentionally, formally or informally. How about this? Maybe you've gotten word that maybe a loved one, maybe a distant loved one has passed away and you're the last remaining heir and you find out that this exciting news that you have, you have been uh, given to you, it's, it's, it's been passed along to you, an inheritance given as a result of your relationship to this long-lost second cousin's roommate's brother, all right? Whatever that is, you've been given a brand to you new home. Ever been then given something and maybe you show up and you look at a house only to find out it might need a little TLC, Right? In fact, some of you here probably inherited, say, a home place from mom and dad. Maybe mom and dad got it from, you know, grandfather and grandmother, and then now it's passed along to you, and perhaps there are pictures of its glory days, but its glory days are not today, all right? Something that perhaps is beyond its prime. Think about the promise that's being made here. That the promises that are made to us, the inheritance we have coming for us, that, that, that which Christ himself said, I go to prepare a place for you. This very inheritance of what is to come is not subject to the decay or depreciation of this world. It can never be defiled. Jesus himself said that neither rust nor moth can destroy it. You're not going to have to worry that its value is connected with the stock market. You're not going to have to worry about the price of inflation. You're not going to have to worry about the cost of health care someday. You're not going to have to worry about whether your retirement can sustain you in your eternal existence. God has said, I have have an inheritance for you. It is guaranteed not because of you. It is guaranteed though for you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this inheritance is certain. It is unbreakable. It will forever be yours. And when you get there, it will be worth immense value greater than you could even conceive. And it will not be worth any less than it was the day Christ paid for it. 
That's the promise of, the, of what's coming for you. This is the, the hope of the inheritance. But listen, he doesn't stop there. So, so this is what's coming. It, it's not corruptible. It won't be defiled. It doesn't fade away. It's reserved. But then when he says you, he then talks about you. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, he says, look, it's not just about these promises of heaven to come. It's not just about the fact that you will enjoy a life of perfect love, of perfect peace, in God's perfect presence, that whatever he means by saying, I go to prepare a place for you, whatever that glorious heaven looks like, that's beyond any of our imagination, Yes, all of that is for us. It will be there when we get there, and it'll be in all of its full glory and splendor when we get there. But it's not just that. Peter goes one step further and says, you also are kept, guarded, secured by this same God. You who are kept by the power of God, for a salvation to be revealed. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that you're going to have to get saved again sometime. Sometimes the Bible speaks of salvation as the past work of making us right with God, of the present work of making us like Christ, and of the future work of fulfilling that promise, where we will be then fully like Christ. And this is the context. He's saying that in the meantime, between the... the the now and the not yet, right? Between what we are right now and what's coming, that inheritance undefiled and imperishable and that doesn't fade away. And between now and then, you are being kept by the power of God Himself. It's a profound promise. This is the promise that is given to us in the hope of the gospel. And I will remind you, it is only to those who know the gospel Again, if you are here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I am telling you, based on the authority of the infallible Word of God, your life is not secure. In fact, there are grave warnings in Scripture. Hebrews tells us it would be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Jesus himself said, don't worry about fearing man who can't do anything about your soul. Fear him who can destroy life and soul forever. In in other words, you should know that no matter how much money or good works or education or satisfaction you may think you have in this life, if all of that is lived outside of fellowship with Christ, you, you don't have life, hope, or security. So I would implore you once again that you would trust in the good work of Christ and the gospel. Let me give you one more, one more. And this, this really is for you then to take with you and, and read these next few verses a little more carefully. But there's a fourth promise that because of the resurrection, we can also have endurance. We can also have endurance. And so notice what he says in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In other words, in all this stuff I've just said, you greatly rejoice 
Though now, and I love how he says this, it's like Paul talking about our light and momentary afflictions. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. I mean, the understatement of that is profound. If, if, if in the meantime, if for this, this little bit of time, if for now, if it's going to come up, yeah, you're going to face some trials. Namely, they may stick your family in, a, in an arena and watch you get ravaged by lions. They may do that. Nero may kill you in any number of creative and inventive, torturous ways. That's what he means, by the way. If for a little while, if need be, if these, these various trials. <laughs> That's what he means. These kinds of things. And he says, so, so if, though, though now you're facing these kinds of things, he, he then says... You've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, in the meantime, God by His grace ensures that even the trials, even the burdens, even the pain of life that you will have to endure, perhaps day in and day out, even for a little while, if you find yourself under a variety of kinds of persecution and difficulty, you should know that God in His goodness, in His sovereignty, and in His grace is pushing you through all of these as if you are gold being tested by the fire. Because when you get to the end of this deal, when you find yourself all the way through it, it's going to demonstrate to anyone and everyone, but mostly to God Himself, that in fact you have endured and what you have to show for it is that which brings all glory, honor, and praise to Jesus Christ. It is a promise of endurance. It is the promise that we'll make it to the end. This is the promise of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we can be guaranteed that we will make it from here to there. And then once we get there, that that there will be forever. And that there's nothing between the now and the there that can keep me here from ever getting there. Does all that make sense? No, no, not at all. Say, Pastor, you've gone too long. You lost me a long time ago. All right. So this is what we celebrate today. This is why we make much of the resurrection by the way, is why we should always make much of the resurrection. We make much of it because in it we find what is indeed the, the very means of life. That in the, in the resurrection of Christ, God made a fool of death and sin. God made a fool of the adversary that only comes to Steal, kill, and destroy. And in the resurrection, He guaranteed that in Him we can have life and have it more abundantly. So I ask you, do you have a real life? Would you say today, yes, yeah, I do, it's good. Well, if you're saying that and there's no connection whatsoever with Christ, I I would encourage you to look at your life biblically because while you may think that the days that you are living through, you're living through just fine, in fact, this life is hardly even a blip on the screen compared to eternity to come. The Bible does tell us everybody will spend eternity somewhere And where that is depends on your relationship with Christ. And so I 
once again would make an appeal if there's anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior. What a day then to trust Him and Him alone for salvation. If you'd like to know more about what that means, I'll be right down front as we're going to sing together in just a moment. If you'd like to know more about what it means to trust Christ as your Savior, if you'd rather wait till after the service, I'll be in the back in the vestibule. Would love an opportunity to speak with you more about what it means to trust in Christ. To the believer here today, especially to the believer who is undergoing the burdens and difficulties of life, just know that because Christ is alive, so are you, and that life is now, and that life is forevermore. And that no matter the burdens or the pains that you are under, you can trust that your God will see you from here to there, and once there, it will be forever. Maybe you need that encouragement. Maybe you just want to come here and pray. Maybe you'd like me to pray with you. I'd love an opportunity to do that. How would you then respond to God's word today? Let's stand together and I will pray and this time will be open to you. Father God, we do thank you for gathering your people. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for life that is found in Christ. We thank you then for hope and security and endurance for these precious promises that come to us because Christ was crucified and then was raised from the dead and that in him Death has lost its power and sin has lost its sting and now we walk in victory. And so we thank you, God, for the victory given to us in Christ. And I pray, God, that you, by your Spirit, would then bring your word to bear on our lives that we might walk in faith and obedience to you, that all that we do would bring glory to you. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.